Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. You are joining us uh, from London, from UK. Anyway, you will tell us where you are joining us from. I'm in Italy. Yes, I'm really happy to talk to you. So why don't we start Thank with you. a small presentation of yourself. Tell us a little thing about okay. you. Okay, my name is, my full name is Olua Yemisi Olayin Kamajekudumi. And I'm based in the United Kingdom, England, of course. Um, and basically, my background is as being in mental health. I've always enjoyed serving people. And my work has always been hands-on with people. I don't really like sitting behind a computer. I actually work with grassroots. So I've worked with, for many years, with um, Black and ethnic minorities surviving mental health challenges. So I've seen people broken and restored back to work, career, whatever. And, it's, and I found huge fulfillment in this. However, my turning point came, my greatest challenge has been when I lost my husband in 2013. However, I was actually quite fortunate in the sense that because I'd come from a healing and restorative background with people, all what I'd have used to empower people and build them back up emotionally, I used it to build myself back up. So, and one of the main premises of my growth and strength has been my faith which has always been with the work I do and what I am today. So that's me in a nutshell. So I became a widow in 2013. And so my vision for my life took a turn in that I decided to start empowering women who've lost their spouses. But what I did as well is I remember a few months into my husband's passing, I said to myself and to my two children, we will not be defeated by this. And I said to myself, I've always believed in matrimony. And when it's right again, I would want to marry again. So I would never open my, close my heart to love again. So that was my driving force. So as I built myself back up during my walking, when it came to one year, I remember it was a huge milestone for me. Because I remember looking back and I thought, wow, I'm still here. I've survived it. So I started writing my book. And the title of my book was Walking Out of Widowhood. In writing my book, it was quite raw, but it was very therapeutic for me because it was very I could express myself and all the pain and all the ups and downs and challenges. But what was always stable in my life and always is, is my faith. And when I talk about my faith, even when I talk on platforms, I don't just talk about faith with no actions. I talk about faith that has to be fearless. You have to act on your faith. I believe God that would not do anything for you if you do not step out and do something. It's, if you do pray, but you have to step out and walk into the river, into the sea. So I wrote the book a year later. I didn't publish it. I didn't produce it until just over a year ago when we came into the furlough, the furlough, which is the job retention scheme in England. I became furloughed for a year and a half, and that gave me more time to refine my book and separate perhaps the emotional bits and speak more about the solutions I want to give women. Because I find many times it's so easy to dwell on the pain and not find a solution. So my book is more about how you can find your way out of widowhood and how you can strengthen yourself and find purpose out of it. Because I feel I found purpose out of it. So that's my story in a nutshell. It's been eight years. 
It'll be eight years this December. And I say to widows, and I'm saying it again around the world, you can dare to dream a greater dream. And when I say that, I say, when we people talk about recovery, I'll talk a bit more in that in terms of the work I do. I talk about recovery in terms of not just what you lost, but even greater than what you had before. Because there are dreams we didn't have before that you'd even find greater ones from even your loss. Recovery is a gradual step. It is not suddenly. I'm not saying you recover within a day or two or a few months. But the main focus is to positively try and find your way out of loss. That's my story in a nutshell. Andy, back to you. <laughs> Thank you very much, dear Yemi. I really um, find a lot of value in what you are saying. And I believe uh, this podcast is going to be filled with a lot of value also because you are speaking from your heart. Any person that is listening can really see that you are speaking from your heart. That is what is very important at the end of the day because Thank we you. are communicating, we are connecting, we are trying to uh, put our life out there to also help other people because we are not alone in this world. Whatever it is that is happening to you, some other persons uh, is also experiencing it. So the reason we share is that we let the other person out there know that, hey, you are not alone. We can journey together because other people like you have overcome this. It might not necessarily be uh, about the loss of, uh, of a loved one in this case. It might be a loss of job. It might be uh, a catastrophe of any kind of category, you know. But the point and the very important point there to note is that Whatever is happening to you, you are not alone. So this is very important. If I were you were talking mm -hmm. about purpose, I remember the work of uh, Victor L. Franco, A Match Set for Meaning. Uh, that is a very important book also, no? in that, you know, in life, things happen to us that we do not anticipate. Because this is also probably what is the most, the most beautiful thing about life, in that there is no template. We are not going to find uh, uh, the, the, the template for your life that how you are going to go from when you were born to the day you die. It doesn't happen like that. You are basically going to be walking out every day, trying to construct your life in your falling and in your rising. So I think it is really very important, the conversation that we are having today and also the work that you are doing. All right, because uh, this uh, podcast is mainly also about the people, your life, your journey, because we want to reach out to people and also try to document their passes. I would like to start with you uh, by your name, Yemi. Of course, I'm already saying that you, that is a Yoruba name. That is from Nigeria automatically. Yes. Uh, yes. Were you born in Nigeria or were you born in the UK? Tell us a little bit about born, that because I would like to okay, trade on that. I was born in England. I was born in Manchester. And I I left when I was seven and I lived in Nigeria to secondary school age. And I came back to do my sixth form here. And I've been here more or less studying and working, going back to visit. But I've basically been based in the UK since I was 16 when I came back. Thank you for that. Uh, where okay. the, the reason for that also, you might ask, where it is important because we are trying to connect. If we are trying to connect, for us that are coming from Africa, that means those are, that are coming from Africa in the recent year, even you, your parent, of course, I'm talking of the yes. last uh, 100, 200 years. Of course, it didn't, we don't have any... Okay, we still have challenges connected to our roots, no? But to those who have left before, talking of maybe slavery, who do not know where they are coming from in Africa, who, of course, yeah. know that they are from Africa, it is very challenging for them. So it is very important that we always try to connect to our roots. That is why, of course, uh, 
just pronouncing your name. I know you are in Nigeria and also know where you are coming yes. from in Nigeria. So it's become yes. also automatic for us. Now, uh, what you do is very therapeutic and very deep and very important. Is there any way that they have anything to do with your root, where you are coming from? Maybe the story that your parents told you, or is it because of your education in the UK? I think where, in terms of my, the work I've done, I work in, I'm not there at the moment, I'm still on furlough, I should have gone back. Anyway, is it was set up, this year of my organization was set up for black and ethnic minorities, Africa, African and Afro-Caribbean adults with enduring mental health problems in the United Kingdom because there was a huge percentage of people of color that were breaking down in the system, going into hospital, but we're always coming out and coming, going back in. So what had happened is there was a lady, a pastor who had a vision to set up the organization to cater for such adults. So my work is basically being with people from African, Afro-Caribbean people for over 20 years. And what I found in doing that is they, when coming to the day center as a black and ethnic minority organization, they flourished because of the cultural connection. So number one, there were people, the, the majority that were there looked alike. It, ele it elevated the isolation that many ethnic minority groups sometimes feel or get in the United Kingdom. Recovery was quicker. And then we found a lot of professionals used to come to our doors and ask if we would take people that had been sick for years. But maybe they came to the project. Within a year, there was an absolute turnaround we provided lunch every day. So that made people, even just the taste, the smells, the music. And we had people who were professionals that came back and couldn't believe the transformation in such service users. So, so there's a connection there. And I believe because of my faith, I feel I was, I was ordered somehow to work in that project. And it's been one of the best blessings I've ever received from working there because I was working with people within an ethnic minority setting. So even though I was born here, my, my roots are still in Africa and in, from Nigeria. Because I remember when I start, initially started as a deputy support worker, I used to go into hospitals and I remember seeing people of color. Some of them wouldn't have had any visitor for years and I would end up asking the nurses and then give our leaflet. And then when they get discharged, they will come to our organization and they just thrived basically. So, so that's the background of my work. So I've always worked with grassroots, but in this profession, I worked with people of color and I still do it today. I find even as much as I talk about widows, I'm now, I find I've got a Facebook group, but it's a very international forum. As much as I'm based in the United Kingdom, I notice a lot of African Americans are drawn to me, to the work I'm doing. And I'm presently linking with a lady in Kenya as well. So thank God for the internet. So it makes me, makes it my work internationally relevant. As much as widows face loss and pain, there's an international relevance. And another angle to that is when I produced my e-notes, which is working out of widow, it's a shorter version of the book. I, I had to re-edit it because I wanted to give an international perspective. Because when you live in the West and you're British or born in a Western country, you're privileged to have access to a lot of resources. Whilst knowing where my parents come from, many are widows are not fortunate. 
And I'm aware, obviously, there's a lot of suffering, rejection, so much abuse to widows, especially in developing countries. And that's another angle I added into my e-notes and which I'm exploring. And in the future, adding to the vision of how I can connect with widows in such developing countries. The remit is massive because the remit at the moment is widows ages 35 to 55. But I'm sure there's somewhere along the line, I'm going to connect with widows from international settings as well, because there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of stigma. The, the huge, what I talk about a lot as well when I'm on platforms is when a woman is widowed and she's ready to marry, no one should chastise or judge her because she wants to get married. No one should say, no one has the right to say to a widow, you're meant to stay like that all your life. Who are we to say that? As long as you have life and from a faith perspective as a Christian, the Bible says, when death do us part, when we have parted in death, a woman or a man can go and get remarried. So that's another angle I tend to talk about. It's a huge remit, but I'm sure the Lord who's given me this role has made me able. So, so that's it so far. Mm -hmm. back to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Yemi. Uh, now, I'm still trying to maybe ask you one or two questions there. Um, okay. In the early period, no, in where you were still growing or trying to find your path, no? Because I believe that life is a journey. Uh, like I was saying yeah. before, we don't have any template. Like maybe when you were, but it's true that in Africa, of course, we do, the parent do uh, do a lot to try to tell the parent, this is what you have to do, no? You know, when you are going to school, yeah. they, ah, you are going to be yeah. a lawyer, you are yeah. going to be a doctor. So they are very keen on that, no? But well, that is just the profession. But life is not only a profession. Life is a whole yeah. lot of things put together. When this is happening, you are not putting pieces together. You are building. It's like um, it's like it's like an edifice, a structure. You are yes. putting block on it, one uh, brick, one after the other, uh, until the end of your life. You know, life is a, it's an interesting journey. I look at it like a journey. All right, now when you were much smaller, uh, I'm talking yeah. of the young Yemi and yes. Manchester. Yeah. Yeah. What was your whole kind of vision? Like, what were you saying that this was going to be my trajectory, more or less? What I can say, I must say, I don't really remember much about when I was younger in Manchester, but I remember when I was seven and I landed in Nigeria and I remember a lot of people had a lot of baskets on their heads. It was like totally different setting. But I ended up going to, I was privileged to have a good education. I went to a boarding school in Nigeria. So I lived among culture, obviously, grassroots but I was placed in a very remote part of Nigeria, which was the village. And what I do remember is that I was, I was always one who would speak out. I was always, I always played devil's advocate. So no matter what people were talking about, everyone would share their views, but I would always like people to view it from another perspective. I never felt there was always one or two perspectives. I was always there to try and stare something new, create some, create another angle because nothing we say is absolute. So I remember always being, and then I was quite interactive. I was a very social individual, even in school, when I was in secondary school, I had quite a few friends, but I was still, I was more or less always in the ground. I was always in the background with friends, but I never, I knew my teachers didn't know me because I remember one particular incident. I don't know if I did quite well in one subject or something happened where they wanted the prefects. And I remember 
somebody, I was sitting in front in the class and someone was asking, the teacher was asking, who is so-and-so? And everyone was laughing, thinking, how come he doesn't know who I am? So I raised my hand, but I think they were trying to look for a timekeeper because to, to wake people up in the morning. Anyway, I finally had to do that, which was me waking up at five o'clock and ringing the bell. But I've always played in the background. I've never necessarily wanted the limelight. I've always stared and empowered people in the background. But as I'm seeing now, obviously, I'm obviously talking to you on, on this program, but I find I've always walked, I've always enjoyed walking with people. And another thing I remember is when we, when I was at home, I used to really enjoy entertaining people, like cooking meals, having people around, just gathering people together. And I've always enjoyed that as well. And I've always enjoyed eating healthy food. That I remember very clearly. And I'm never, I've never been afraid to speak up. I've always never, I've always never, I've always stood alone in terms of being an advocate to say what is truth, even whatever is going to cost me, I would say it. I refine it. I learned to become more tactful. When I was younger, I wasn't as tight. I was a bit tactless. But as I've become more matured, I've refined what I say and become more tactful. But you would always hear Yemi say what other people are afraid to say, as they say, the elephant in the room. But it always tends to generate conversation and opens people up because we, we live in a world where there's a lot of fear, even in small settings, in workplaces. And that's why I'm looking, that's why I'm doing coaching as well. There's a lot of people, whatever echelon you're in, people voices are not heard all the time. You limit, people always limit what they have to say. I've had it in so many settings, people will say things to me. You get to bigger forums, they say, hear your view, no one says anything. So I tend to say some of the things and so on and so forth. So that's why I can remember. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, why, why do you think people don't really say what they mean? In fact, this is one of the problems actually that we have around. We just sort of make a lot of people pretend, no? Is it because they don't yeah. want to offend somebody or they don't know enough or they just are not taught to speak? Because speaking also is it's a big thing. It's, uh, it's very important in our economy today because this is an yeah. economy that is based on connecting communication customer service it is more important yes. than ever before so why do you think people uh, of course like you you said when you were growing up uh, it was very easy for you to speak your mind you know this is what we are saying we really should speak out our mind say mm -hmm. it of course you are not going to be right all the time if you if you are wrong, just accept that you are wrong. Then move on from there. But it is important. It is more important for you to speak and be wrong. I never say anything. You don't have any opinion. You are just like I support. You cannot always support. Say your own. Stand for your own. Sometimes. So why do you think? Uh, of course, because you made mention of coaching, mm -hmm. which of course we are going to get to later in the podcast. Yeah. And so I'm just throwing that one in in conversation. So why? I think. I think being in um, a lot of cultural settings, especially, I find mainly it can be quite cultural. Like in some cultures, children are raised to be quiet and just listen. So you find even when you when they start to socialize, I remember when I used to take people out, because I used to take a lot of women out for meals and stuff like that, part of my work. When we were gathered, I noticed people, some people would not say anything. And in studying them, they had a lot to say, but they were not used to 
cultivating that habit to speak where people were gathered. It's only with time they came out of their shells. So that so there's a cultural issue. Then number two, there's confidence. Confidence in perhaps afraid people might not really relate to them. Perhaps you're not sure what you're saying, or perhaps not really believing in yourself. So these are things that have to be noxious as children, or even where we are in work settings. Sometimes people are suppressed as well unconsciously in work settings where in the suppression, your confidence is killed. It's only when you come out and maybe go for counseling or coaching, you realize, oh my goodness, I've been duly limited in many ways. And then there's also the issues around perception, race, gender, and how you define yourself. So in terms of gender, if you're not empowered as a female, depending on your background, you might get to settings where you're with women and you're not, you don't have a voice. You might have what you're thinking, but you might not be able to verbalize it because you're not so sure if it's the right setting or what people would say. So there are numerous issues, so many, so many issues. But the, what I would say, however, is when we become adults and when we are in places of power, especially if you're, you have governance, you're in charge of governance with staff and teams, it's always important to cultivate a culture where people can speak out. No matter even if it's not what you want to hear, but he always engineers growth. Wherever people are not allowed to speak, there can never be growth. And people will go backstabbing and speaking and whispering and everything. And it creates an atmosphere of fear, which isn't the best place to grow in or to thrive in. <laughs> yeah, that is good. Uh, growth is very important. This is the last question I'm going to ask you here before we move to your professional uh, level now, okay. uh, where you are. Okay. Now, in always in this uh, aspect of communication, which is speaking out, uh, you are yeah. in both world, both uh, in Europe and also in Africa, in that you both understand this world. And we are more concerned yeah. about the African set, you know, because we are both yeah. from Nigeria. And we know that this is a problem that we have in Nigeria because I have another podcast that is dedicated to African and also um, an African leadership, something like that. So yeah. we talk yeah. a lot about our leaders. And one of the problems that we have complained a lot about is the communication mm -hmm. level. That most of our leaders in Africa, not all, uh, not all, yes. of course, I do enjoy their speech sometimes, but some of them do not really verbalize the thing very well. They don't master the yes. communication skill very well. Speaking of Nigeria, for example, you can it can even be during the time of Ambassador John, Good Lord Jonathan, uh, or even the current president that we have today, we know mm -hmm. that there have been a defect in terms of communication. That is at the political level. But of course, this yeah. can trickle down to our everyday life, you know? Or maybe, is it because we are speaking English? I don't understand if that is the problem or because it's not just part of our culture. But that cannot also be true because our culture is very verbal, as it were, you know? <laughs> you look at maybe the Yoruba or the Igbo or the Hausa, or even in my uh, a, a local tradition, for example, Esa, people speak a lot. But yeah. when it comes to articulating the issue at a formal level, it becomes a little bit an issue. So mm -hmm. one time I was interviewing an educationist in South Africa, and I was saying, yeah. why we don't hear African leader when they go to the United Nations, instead of going there to Magomago, you know, that is how the Nigeria say, to Magomago English, yeah. that they don't speak very well. Yes. Why can't they just yeah. speak their language? This way they will articulate it perfectly. Because in the language, mm -hmm. you can make some idiomatic expression, you can make yes. some jokes, 
you can you can play on words. That is what make it beautiful. If you look at yeah. big orators, sorry to use him as an example because it's not really um, a good example, but he's very good in this particular area. Like Hitler, when Hitler speaks, everybody is listening. So people mm -hmm. of that, because that is a, a very powerful thing that happened when you talk, when you are able to really control the conversation. I don't really like to comment on politics because it's a big area in itself. However, comparing certain countries where people do not speak, I still believe it's about the structure, the opportunity and access. So if there's like, because it's amazing how people don't realize how powerful they are when they're in positions of authority. So if you don't give, if you don't create a structure where the media is fully free to express itself, how would people actually be able to submit articles or express their views through the media? If you create a country where you haven't created a structure where young people are mentored into leadership, where they can actually speak in different areas, people are not going to speak. If you create an area where unconsciously there's oppression, hidden oppression, unspoken oppression, or, or an impression that only those who are affluent and powerful have a say, the effect is what we get, lack of communication, lack of fear. It happens in every country at different levels. However, in certain countries, there's more access. There's more opportunity to speak up. There's more freedom of the press and so on and so forth. And I'm looking at the world as a whole, but the most important thing is it's the leaders. What are leaders saying? What access are they giving? What, what are they saying to the people? What are they allowing the people? And so on and so forth. That's right. what I was saying. Thank you very much. I'm not going to drag you on politics because, of <laughs> course, we all have different sensibilities. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, let's look at uh, uh, one of your area, which is a uh, uh, meta head um, profession. Can you, yeah. what would you like to say about that as your, as your, as, as, mm. because you are an expert in that area? Or yeah. What say, I would... Okay. Please go. Mm. It's uh, what I would say. As much as I've worked in mental health for over 20 years, the mind, the brain still baffles me. However, what I would say is when one, the most important thing is being able to access support when people are emotionally vulnerable and broken. Number two, the amount of support you have around you ensures your speedy recovery. Number three, there's always a cultural need and provision for people who come from different ethnic groups in terms of their recovery and treatment. Not all recovery or treatments, and when I say treatment, I'm talking about social care, even medication would treat all people. All these have to be incorporated. But what I have seen is when you provide the appropriate service to people who need it culturally, they thrive quicker. In terms of mental health as well, there are other factors that can create mental distress. But what I would say, number one, is a lot of us internalize pain. Internalized pain, the pain could be anything from what I'm talking about today, being a widow. It could be lack of, it could be racism, lack of promotion at work, so on and so forth. But you don't go and talk to someone, get help. Many of us try to keep up appearances. And this goes across the board. You could be in an executive position, but you know 
there's certain things you get to the li- the limit of where you what you can do, but yet your executive your funders are putting pressure. You need to get support. You need to connect. We see it in the church sometimes as well. People are leaders, but they don't have board members that can support them, or they don't go, or they don't create a fence of support around them. So that's where I mean I've heard of people who have been in authority leaders who have just walked out because they become mentally distressed. So the most important thing is being aware of your limits. We are, even when you're a president or you're a leader or you're a manager, we all have our limits. But before you get to your limits, it's very important to create structures around you that can empower and support you when, when or when you need to bounce ideas and distress the burden of what you what is being laid at your shoulders. Because the higher we go, the more human beings expect a lot from us, but they forget we're all human. And also when we look up to leaders, wherever they are, we've got to remember they're human as well. So there's no perfection in man. We 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 gain strength from connecting with each other and being transparent as well. Because being transparent allows you to be more accountable and actually eases your mental health stress. You don't all you don't carry everything by yourself, but share it and unburden it and delegate. Because some people do not know how to delegate, and that causes mental distress as well. Thank you very much for that. Um, you see, this is a very important conversation uh, that I I think we really need to uh, talk about. No, I don't know how much we can take on it today, which is mental health. No, uh, because. Yeah. Uh, from a cultural point of view, it's not even something that we talk about a lot in in Africa and in among the African diaspora, because that is our target, no? Yes. Uh, because yes. sometimes we easily misunderstand mental health for spiritual problem, no? Mm-hmm. That when somebody yeah. is having mental disturbance, we easily say, ah, okay, maybe this person is being attacked spiritually, so the solution, therefore, is let's go and pray and all that, no? Instead of looking for a way uh, to try and understand what is really going on there. So I don't know, because you have been in this area for over 20 years, what is your reaction to that, to the perception, how people see it? Because first of all, it even start with, if we consider it a problem, and what kind of a problem is it for us that uh, determine what kind of a solution we are prescribing? So what is your take on that? <laughs> Mental health is a very controversial topic because um. From the, from the faith point of view, you can people would argue that you can't be in Christ or know the Lord and have a mental health problem. But I would dispel that myth because not all issues around mental health is to do with someone possessed and so on and so forth. Mental health many times is distress. And what I found in my line of work is many people from, our, from the diaspora of Africa or people of color, or other groups, because of the issue around stigma, they don't access help very quickly. So for example, if your childhood son has a challenging problem, because they're afraid of what the society might think, they might decide to keep taking the person to spiritual prayers and not access practical help as well. But what I've learned, the longer you leave it, the worse it becomes. And when I say the worst it becomes, many times it's when the person starts running out into the street, then everyone thinks, starts to wonder, we didn't know this person had a challenge or so on and so forth. So it's about combining the help you need therapeutically, medically, and 
the spiritual side, because I say, I always give an example that there was a case of someone who went away and was on medication for many years, but forgot the medication in a country. And when he was coming back, he just became, he broke down and he was running around the airport. So I say to people, when people argue against the medical model, I say, if he's to get therapeutic help and counseling, he won't be able to sit down to listen to Erin therapist because he's running around and shouting all over the place and taking off his clothes. Something has to sedate or manage that emotion at that time. Obviously that's an extreme case, but I, I tend to find that the sooner you access supports, be it counsel, talking therapy, or talk to someone, the sooner the main problem can be resolved. Many times when, and I know there are clinical cases where there's an imbalance in the brain when people have studied that and so on and so forth. But in my practical experience, the sooner when you find you're mentally distressed, it's important to access help. help. I even find like, for example, in bereavement, many a times people would say they can't sleep, they can't do this, they can't do that. And they won't tell family, they won't tell anyone. And when you ask them, you they'll say, oh, I don't want to worry them. But you, you do have to tell someone because that means you're internalizing all the pain yourself. There's nothing wrong in seeking help and so on and so forth. However, in some countries, the, the mental health services are not, and they're not very good. So that could generate, engineer a lot of fear. So when people feel they're becoming distressed or there might be a mental health problem, a clear, maybe schizophrenic diagnosis, people might not want to access services because they know the services are not so good or even where they are so good if you're afraid if you're a person of color in western countries many people think they don't want to go to the hospital because they treat them different there's so many different stories but part of my work has always been to accompany people to the gatekeepers which we call gps doctors and be present at meetings and speak on behalf of people when people cannot speak or if you find there's a tendency for for people to already have preconceived ideas about certain cultures and so on and so forth. So advocacy is very important to bring someone along. I found times when you do go with people, people listen more, they give you more time because you've accompanied the person. Whilst many times people have gone on their own and they don't really get the outcome until you actually go with them. And so it goes on. But mental health is a huge topic. It's a, it's a phenomenal, controversial topic. But Self-care is very important and do not cover, do not pretend that things are not happening to you when you know you need help. Uh, like I said, this is a very important uh, conversation because uh, if, we, if we were to look at the African diaspora alone, it's an issue that is happening all over, all over. Go to any street, go to any train station, basically, because of course, that is the point of entry and exit. So we usually, uh, uh, that is where we know most of the cases, no? Because uh, in our language, it is said that, let me say it in my language, then I will translate it to you. Meaning, the man, person, man with what he knows. Because of course, mm. the prayer, like you said, is a very powerful instrument. Uh, we've been living in this earth for a very many thousands of years. Until now, those that have studied the brain, I see discovering a lot of the tasks. We are not even gotten uh, anywhere in understanding how the brain, <clears throat> how the brain functions. Which means that we yes. cannot just simply say we know. We don't know enough. 
Mm. Uh, so this is a problem that we have all across. So to say that because we are Africa, we don't suffer what other people suffer, I don't think that is even a good enough as an excuse. Because now mm. I would even like us to take the argument back to our culture. Um, is it even possible? Let me first of all ask you, then I will see if I, if I need to say anything about that. Is there any explanation of mental health in our culture? Help me even with the Yoruba culture, for example, because I know how it is treated in my culture. Um, as far as I know, I'm not. So what I do know is that there's when where there's mental health issues, sometimes people are not treated as they should do. And many times it depends on your access to medication and being able to pay for the right specialist care. And there's been extreme cases where people even are confined in certain places and not really treated. And that means they're getting worse. And there's still issues around possession and deliverance. I, I am a Christian. I believe there are prayers we can pray about deliverance and healing. However, you won't be able to pray for a person who keeps running around and shouting and taking their clothes off. They need to be calmed first. It's in calmness that you can even pray. It's in calmness that you can actually have a consultation with a doctor or psychotherapist. There has to be some kind of medication that will calm you down if it's got in a very extreme case. So all the elements can work together because the organization I worked for, is um, it was a Christian organization. And I found no matter how ill people became, because it was there was a spiritual side to it, that's what also enhanced recovery. However, we didn't just depend on that. We linked people with their GPs. We drew up care plans of what their needs are. Like a lot of people have financial problems. Housing was a huge problem, which created a lot of distress. We had young women that were due to have babies and the roof would just cave in in a one bedroom flat. We had to link in with housing services. There was issues around education. They go to university, people feel isolated because they've come from a mainly predominantly culturally based setting and they go in a predominantly white setting and there's not enough support, they break down. There's been so many issues. So what I'm just trying to say is we we all, there has to be holistic working professionals, spiritual leaders, everyone has to come together and work. So it's not about just one thing because one's mental distress can be caused by different things. So the church could pray for you, but they, no one wants to be prayed for if they're hungry. I've heard people say, don't pray for me yet. I haven't had dinner. So you have to sit them down, give them food. Yes, or I haven't had a shower for seven days and you want to pray for me. You won't even be able to pray for the person. You have to shower them. So what I'm trying to say is about holistic walking and different groups complementing each other in providing care. All right, that is very important. Very important that... Uh, uh, to highlight the, the, the fact that the causes of mental health is not just one thing because we're looking at the human mm -hmm. being and the human being is very complex. And I think this is also one of the things that I like about the holistic uh, approach to, to illness, to treatment of illness. No? Uh, of course, I understand maybe based on the Western tradition of healing that you need to actually isolate. Maybe somebody is having uh, an eye problem then we go and treat that eye, no? That is how they, they, they do it, mm -hmm. that is the logic, no? You, you go and isolate the eyes and see what is the defect in the eye, then you go and resolve the problem. And sometimes the person can see well. But there is another approach, which is the one you are saying, which is the healing, because you don't heal the eyes, you heal the body. 
Because the eyes is part of the body. Maybe the problem is not really the eyes. The problem is coming from somewhere, but manifested in the eyes. If you then yes, know yeah. what the problem is, you solve the problem, then the eyes, of course, gradually we get the problem resolved. Okay, where I'm going here is that by cultural understanding, I'm trying to say that those who think that mental health, they, they, are, they have stigma towards it, is that it is not something to be ashamed about. Because, like I said, the brain is very powerful. Sometimes, just by miscalculation, you can be seeing things that you're not supposed to be seeing or that, was, that don't yeah. make any sense to you. Then, if you are interpreting what you are seeing, then to somebody who is not seeing what you are seeing, you are out of your senses. Because we have mm -hmm. limited information. In our culture, for example, you remember, you know this one. Yes. The role okay. of psychology is not something new. It has been here for a very many years. No, that is what we know as the soothsayer. There are those who are the seers, for example. These people mm -hmm. are doing exactly the role that psychologists do. That maybe you you were sleeping, you had a dream, and in this dream you see somebody pursuing you. This person probably had a cutlass. Somebody is yes. holding a cutlass. Mm -hmm. is going to cut off your neck. That is what you see in the image of your dream. And you, are, you wake up yeah. now, you are scared. And perhaps in your dream, there is also the face of the person that was pursuing you. Now, what are you going to do? If you are not strong enough, you just take the person that is pursuing you. you go, maybe you go and shoot the person so that you don't have... The person doesn't go to kill you. But that might not actually be the picture. That might not actually be what yeah. is happening there. That is why you need an expert. In the pre-Christian mm -hmm. era, for example, you just go need to see the... Or the seer, somebody who is able to know beyond you. And what do do people? What do, do these people do usually? They come to talk to you. And what do the psychology do today? They talk to you. They listen to your story. They ask you a lot of questions. And from what you tell them, they're able to prescribe something for you to do. And of course, maybe in the typical African tradition, they might tell you to go do this and do that and do that. But they are not crazy. They are reading you. They are reading from what you are telling them, you see? So I am trying to say that even in the traditional yeah. African system, there are ways to overcome some of these things. Because I don't remember having so many crazy people uh, in my village, you know, for example. Of course, there are, sometimes it, it does happen. But it's not so many like we, in the city where I live, there are a lot of Africans that I know just roaming the street. They have got it not, no? So we cannot simply say this is a spiritual case. This is what I'm saying, that this thing no. does happen. And like yeah. you said before, we don't only have to talk about it when it have got it out of her. It have got it beyond the limit this time. But when yes. it was just growing up, that is why the communication is very important. We need to talk to one another so that we know what is happening in our brain. This way we can begin to visit yeah. why it's just getting off. Because when it is finally off, it becomes very difficult. Now, yeah. looking around your area where you are in the UK, what do people tell you that yes. make them not to talk about it? Because at a point, you do you have to open up. What did they tell you is the reason that make them not to talk about it? I, I think what it is is people who have mental health problems or have experienced it, they want to talk about it, but the society many times are afraid or there's a stigma about it. So like in cases I came across, even when people wanted to go back to work, if there's such a long gap of you being unemployed, you have to account for that period, for example. So may you say, if people say they were this, this, that, the employer won't take them. So they have to set up projects where 
employers were aware of the history and then they will take them on. But that shouldn't really be the case because even when people have had a mental health challenge and they're now quite stable and the doctor says they're able to return to work, what should really happen is when you get the employment, there should be support system systems in the employment setting for that individual. They shouldn't necessarily have to go and work on a project where, which many times is like volunteering anyway, it's not even paid. So you find, so it's not always about the individual, it's about society. Society easily alienates people who, who say they have mental health problems because they're afraid or perhaps they're afraid it might happen to them. Anything that they don't want to happen to them, sometimes people avoid or just separate themselves from it. It's the same, it's very similar with grief. In England, when you go through grief, after the funeral and everything else, people really don't really know what to say to you. What people do sometimes, you might even be walking down the road and people will cross onto the other side because they don't know what to say. And that tends to be some many cases with mental illness as well. I think it's like maybe a gem. Maybe you, they'll catch the gem or the bug. But in terms of, can I just mention Sonic about um, a lot of people roaming around as well? Is many times, like in England, what I find is there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of lack of opportunities as well. So, like where there hasn't been, where people, some people have gone to school, got the qualifications. But then they now want to seek work. They might get the work, but many times it might be grades lower than what they're meant to be working for. But they have a family. They can't provide for the family, especially during the period where the, the partner is just having children. So the pressure of lack of finance creates pressure on the marriage. The marriage might break down. What happens? Maybe the man leaves the home or is kicked out of the home. There's more support for women than men in England. So when you're a single male of a certain age, you're more vulnerable because you might not end up having a proper housing. You might end up in a one single room. And those can create mental distress. And then if you were one where there were issues in the home, you might not even have access to your children. So you come from family and now you're on your own. And then you lose your job because if you don't have a fixed abode, where are you going to send your forms? Where are, you, where are you going to say you're living? So it just spirals into so many issues. I, I like also the, the way that you look at it, no? in that we need to see that there are actually causes, no? because it is what we don't understand it that will begin to interpret it in a spiritual pain, or you know? maybe that is the demon, maybe that is the, yes, the grandmother yes, in yes. the village that it causes it. Because, mm. okay, now, you see, in 2010, I wrote a book that I, I told other development in Africa, my hands are clean. That we often try yeah. to say that it is the fault of another person while it is not working. But you never try to look at where is your fault in it. That is the thesis of the book. Now, in the book, I was saying that, uh, now let's look at road accident, for example. If we say road accident is caused by, by the witch, then yes. we conclude that we don't have anything to do about it. But what did you, if we revise that and say, okay, this road accident is caused because there is a bad road. Or maybe yeah. in that road, the sharp, the, the corner is too sharp. For this reason, the driver that is coming is not able to maneuver. That is why there is an um, accident. If we yes, agree yes. that this is the cause, then we can do something about it because the road was constructed yeah. by man. We can make the, 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 the sharp corner to be more broad so that the driver can see far. If the road is broken, yeah. we can fix it. 
Because yes. when we take the power that we have and give it to some mysterious power, give it to some mysterious thing, mm -hmm. then we lose control. We can't control our situation yeah. anymore. Whether we can really control some of the things that are happening to us. This is why I think, like I was also saying before, that the work that the psychologists do, whether you look at it from the point of view of traditional African system or um, yeah. and a qualified psychologist in the West, they do basically exactly the same thing. Either they talk to you, they try to know what is happening to you. Based on what is happening to you, they know what can possibly lead to this mental mm -hmm. illness. And if they know that is yeah. the cause, they can find a solution. For example, now, because you have talked to the psychologist, they now know that you are probably feeling bad because you have lost job. Now, they can't mm. do any magic than just finding you a job. For example, if the system permits it, if you have a job, they, the, the problem of mental health will gradually die down. Of course, there are, there are collateral causes. Because maybe yeah. the, the eye was bad. If it was bad for a very long time, then the eyes can then degenerate to other parts of the body. Of course, if you resolve the eyes problem, it doesn't resolve other parts of the body. So gradually, it begins to build up. So it takes time. But it will work if we try to understand what is actually the cause. Now, yeah. the question I have for you, uh, uh, Mrs. Yemi, is from the people that you talk to, from the people uh, that you have uh, uh, have conversation with, what have you recommended yeah. to them as a solution to this problem of mental health? Well, we don't like we were we didn't we were not in a position to give one solution. Where the space I worked in was social care, so that was like a day center where we provided different therapeutic activities to fill the gap when people were not at work. So, but in liaising with other professionals and going to care program meetings, there were so many issues. But what was beautiful about care program meetings is was that there were people from, so I would be there representing the social care aspect. There'll be someone there that was a psychologist. There'll be someone there who was from housing. There'll be someone there from CAB, Citizen Advice Bureau, that will give legal advice or support. There'll be, there'll be family members. So what used to happen is anything, before they come into the meeting, they would have met the, the client or have formed the relationship. So the client would have expressed perhaps certain issues in the background, in the family that have caused certain problems or financial, whatever. So when, they, when we all come in, it's an opportunity for the, the doctor tends to be the lead person who would then raise these topics and each professional would then take it on their role to provide a solution. Am I making sense? So like if the person is idle, lost their work, for example, being at, some people were at home for 10, 11 hours, not doing anything, not cooking. I, I would recommend coming to the day center where I would help with maybe their bills, find work, training, have lunch, so on and so forth. Whilst if it's like a medical problem or housing, the housing officer would find, go away and find where they can find him or her suitable housing. So everyone worked together to create, to create support. However, what happens as well though, is before you get to that stage, a lot of people don't access, like in England, we, I see the GP as the gatekeeper. So if you have a problem, it's very important to have a doctor that supports you. So you, the first point of contact is your GP. 
So you go to your GP and say, this is what is happening. Many times, you might not necessarily need to be referred to a team of mental health professionals. The doctor might be able to, you might have such a good relationship where in talking as we are now, he might be able to ascertain what the main challenge is and refer you directly to the source of where you can get the solution. Many times it can be financial as well. So, but the most important thing is when you access your GP, that is your gate. I say to people, is your gatekeeper. It's not someone who just gives you medication or someone who's just down the road. They can empower you to gain access to services and give you different insights into different things. Because a lot of people, especially some people don't want to go into the mental health system. So that means by going to your GP, you don't necessarily end up in the mental health team because there's issue around stigma or if you're a professional, your GP might decide to refer you for counseling or perhaps you need a career coach or something like that, rather than go the line of into the system. But where the cases where in cases where I referred to people sitting amongst professionals, these are people who've had long enduring mental health problems where the system has picked them up along the line where they've gone in and out of hospital, in and out of hospital until perhaps a day center like ours would have broken the cycle, you know? So, so there's different stages of it. But the most important thing is getting the support you, you need. And there are cases that are actual clinical cases where there's issues on the brain, there's genetics, there's so many other things as well that can impact people's mental health. But if you're susceptible to it, there's a chance... Some people are more susceptible to mental health challenges than others are, in spite of even getting the support. But that could be gleaned from part from your family history as well, and so on and so forth. I think there's so much to say, yeah. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. Th thank you. I, I appreciate your time. Uh, you see, this is very important. Of course, now we are moving uh, towards the another important argument, which is a windowhood. Uh, but before we move, I just want to uh, say that it is very important the, this conversation and also the experience that you are sharing with us because we are talking about our life, the human being. And a lot of mm -hmm. the people in our community, I'm talking of the African diaspora community, whether you are looking at those in the United States, uh, looking at uh, in Brazil or in London, in UK, where you are, in Italy, where I am, because I just told you how, what I see on the street. No, you go to Germany or you go to France. Other people are suffering, you know? And this suffering, like we have discussed uh, so far, the causes are many, you know? So it is very important that we start by doing what is, has always worked, which is talking, talking about it. Because you never know, the person you talk about might be the right person that, that might just help you. Because it is not a magic. This thing that is called metal head, it is not a magic. There are real causes. There are real causes that make your brain do what it's doing. So the best way, the best solution is if you feel something is strange, if you feel something that you are not used to feeling, talk to somebody. Of course, talk to somebody who is able to help you. Because you cannot solve all this problem alone. None of us can walk in the journey of life alone. It is... Life was not supposed to be lived alone. We're supposed to live right. together. You help me, I help you. Anyway, we don't mm -hmm. even go to, need to go into the integrity of the African society today because this is one of the things I love, I really so love about the construction 
of a society in Africa. Because there, life is all of us together. Even though our politicians mm-hmm. don't say that is how it is, but that is how it has always been. That is how we survive. Because if a problem is allowed to exist, it's going to destroy the society. Therefore, the society have a way of trying to find out what is the problem and resolve it. All right, now, let's move to widowhood. This is another problem of the society. You have even written a book about it. Tell us about this project that you are working on. Well, uh, it's already out. You can get it on Payhip, Mamai, on a link of mine. Working Out of Widowhood is a book I wrote. It's not so much about the loss, but it's about the solutions, how to find your way through widowhood, the loss of your spouse. And I look at different things, but the most important thing and the most challenging thing women face is financial. Because studies show that once a male has, has moved from the home, more or less half or more of the income has been lost. So it's about looking at how you're going to manage your finances. But in my book, I, I was fortunate to be one who was hands-on with my finances. So I say to people that when my husband passed, immediately in my head, I knew what I had to take out of my finances to make me stand okay. But not everyone is fortunate enough because I've met people from different cultures where it was the man that took care of them, he offered to do it. Even though they were career people, he was the one who paid all the bills, did all the DIY, did everything. So when the man passed away, they were in total limbo. So they had to basically, it was like a career change. They had to learn everything about their household. So I talk about finance. I talk about the intention to work out. I call it the conscious intention to work out. And when I talk about walking out of widowhood, I don't mean the physical walking. I talk about the spiritual walking. I can only talk about my personal journey. And what I understand from my faith is when it was around a few months, I just felt I, had, I started to feel spiritually in myself that I could find my way through the loss, despite what was happening to me in, in my sights. But in having that vision, that was what enabled me. So once you have a vision of success, it gives you like a roadmap of where you're heading. So when you, so you have to have something, it's like when you have a goal, so you want to lose weight. So maybe you're 10 kg, but you want to lose five kg. But every day you start to see that you've lost a few pounds. You start to see you're getting closer and closer to the goal. And that's how I can explain it. You have to have an intention. You have to have a vision of how you want to see. It's not easy. I say to people, to widows, it's not an easy journey. But with your, you have to have faith. Faith, when I talk about faith, I talk about Christian faith. And I also talk about faith in believing that you can walk a new life. You can walk a new road. But it's about believing that you can. You get You gather good people around you. You take out people, move people who are not adding to your life. Because many times, when you become a widow, you become quite vulnerable and people want to take advantage. So you have to make a conscious decision of who is adding to your life and who isn't. And you have to separate them and bring in good people that are going to build you up. And another key thing is perhaps walk, get someone to walk alongside of you that has walked the journey, a role model of a widow. And that's one thing I did. I sought someone out and I walked alongside. Someone who'd raised their children and was doing quite well because that also engineers your vision to do well. And though we're talking about widowhood today, it could be anything in our lives. What I would say is 
One of our downfalls in life is we pretend things are okay. So we don't reach for the help we need. Because of pride, many times is pride. And one of the things you learn when you're a Christian woman or man is humility is key. If you can't be humble, you can never ask for help. And people tend to become so distressed in their problems that they break down. And unfortunately, you go into seeing cases I've seen, I go into people's homes and they, I saw them perhaps a day or two, they seemed fine, but what were they doing? They were pretending everything was fine until it becomes so much that they can't cope in their minds, they break down. So people keeping up appearances is pride, pride that doesn't do anything for you, but to break you down. I think that is going to remain a key uh, part of this conversation, which is talking, talking about it. I think that is yes. a saying that a problem shared is a problem half solved. Definitely, because it, it is obvious, no? Because no one is, you, are, you cannot do it all alone. I, I really want to repeat that again because it is very important. All right, now, before we, I, I have a few other questions to ask you there, uh, but now tell me something. Is it the people that, yeah. that eventually become widow or widower were once husband or wife? Of course. Now, I don't want to believe that they really should be facing this issue. Okay, let's say we, because we are human beings. We are what we are yeah. talking about here. Yes. I really do not think it is right that we should be thinking about this only after it has happened. Okay, I mean, death is part of life. It yes. is important that we talk about death while we are alive not when we are dead, because when you die, you don't live anymore. You don't talk anymore. When you yeah. die, of course, you don't feel pain anymore. But remember, you leave something behind. Maybe a yeah. wife, maybe a husband, your children, your family. Yeah. Those are the people that suffer because they carry your story along. So it is, mm. it is really very important that while you are still there, while you are still alive, I mean, let's talk about death. Because there is no way you can avoid it anyway. It's the only thing that is sure if you are alive. Dead yeah. people don't die. Okay. Mm. So, so this uh, potential widow and widower, what are they supposed yeah. to do before it happens? I think the most important thing is you need to... You see, the topic of widowhood, it depends on where you are in the, in the world, where you're located what access you have to insurance policies, how you are based financially. I'm saying that first before I start to say what I want to say. But in, a, in an ideal world where there's opportunities, where you have money and you have access to professionals, you should have life insurance. You should plan, you should have a will. You should plan like, so if you have assets, you should plan clearly what you want your assets, where, you, where your assets are meant to be, who they're for, what you want to happen. And nowadays it's even best to have a trust rather than a will because many wills have been contested. Even when decent men and women have written wills, people contest it by family, in-laws or whatever. So I would advocate for a trust. That's in an ideal world. In some settings that I'm now coming across in a lot of developing worlds where there's a lot of poverty, some men or women have not had access or cannot provide, cannot have insurances or afford to have insurances. So the question is, what do they do? Or when they were even living alive, they were not basically living from hand to mouth. So what tends to happen is when the man dies, 
maybe they were living in a little house. Even the little the widow is even pushed out of the house by the in-laws. I'm hearing in some parts of the world. So it depends on where you're at. So I can I'm just privileged to be where I am, where I can see, I can access insurance policies, or I grew up in a home where my father knew he had to write a will. But what do we say in communities where there's illiteracy, there's no education? There has to be programs there for grassroots to educate people on basic education, job opportunities. It's just phenomenal, the things that there's no, certain infrastructures have to be set up for even people to even perceive or to know that they have to protect their future. All right. Now, another thing that I really uh, would like to, I would like you to speak to uh, is the yeah. area of finance. Uh, now, you yeah. see, we are in Europe. A lot of, yeah. uh, uh, okay, let's say the women now, because the men also do it, but of course, since the European system favor more the women than the men, of course, the men become even more, yeah. they, they do it more, in that people feel they are comfortable by trying to live on the providences of the system, no? That you go to the government, they pay you money, so for this, you don't really think it is important for you to work on yourself and create something for yourself because of course that takes yeah. extra energy. The you need to suffer now because you are going to yeah. go beyond the above the average. So a lot of yes. people that I know are in this sort of trap. No, since we are trying to make sure that we have a quality life, because what the state is going to give you is to have the basic, no, so that you can be alive. Yeah. Because they don't want people. They have, yeah. you know, one thing that is beautiful about the Western lifestyle. Is that they want to give everybody the basic and they have fought yeah. very hard to make sure that it's available of course we don't even have that in africa no but we know that yeah. the basic is not enough we need life we can decide what we want no you can pay for your bill you can choose to live where you want to live of course yeah. not in affluence style no you will be able to mm -hmm. do this if you pay the extra cost with me Say maybe, for example, you come from Mozambique or you come from Nigeria, you come from uh, Senegal, you are now uh, found in Germany or in France or in UK. You can do something like, I don't know, mm -hmm. try to requalify your educational background, get a job instead of just relying mm -hmm. on the benefit from the state. No, because if that is yeah. what your family is relying on, you mm -hmm. and your husband or your wife, if one of them goes, it's going to be more heavy for the one who is left behind. I'm saying this because you said before that one of the problems that you discover is finance. And I think that is really true because I've seen it too. So what yeah. I'm saying now is that can't we, right now, because we are still alive, mm. try to work on ourselves so that we can have something to live by in case something happens. Because we are not sure of what is going to happen. But the Bible does say a good man leaves a good inheritance to his children's children. There's so many issues here, but in terms of with the welfare states in England, the welfare state where you get benefit is only to sustain you until you find the job or opportunity or training opportunity. But what tends to happen as well is some people become so reliant on it that they become complacent and do not, the, the dream or ambition they have seems to die. However, you have to continually be growing. So and I, I even find that many, some many times with issues even in relationships and marriages, sometimes the men are not driven enough. 
they're not driven enough to find Okay, there's so many issues. Okay, there's so many issues. There's issues around immigration. Immigration is a big one. Let's talk about it. So talk people, about the issue. <laughs> yeah, there's so many things. There's immigration. So immigration ties a lot of men and women's hands down. Where you, a lot of Nigerians are very educated in England, but then sometimes they don't necessarily obtain employment for the level of what they've been educated at. Number three. As many leaders now in our communities in England are teaching, it's about educating yourself that you don't need a job. You can actually set up your own business. Number four, the internet has created so many opportunities to create wealth and be self-employed. You know, but I find the biggest thing in terms of our communities is immigration. If there's an issue around immigration, it ties a lot of people's hands. However, a lot of people from my community, Nigerian community, are very ambitious. They work very hard. The average Nigerian that I know, I will at least have one degree or two. However, it's also about picking degrees and study areas that are relevant, not, not necessarily the traditional areas to study. But there's a lot of things you can learn in terms of in the digital world now. And I'm and I'm I'm so happy to see a lot of our young children coming up and learning from that angle rather than going into traditional professions where you get to a certain point financially and then there's no financial growth or access for growth. And the drudgery of work just grounds you down. And that can even make you have mental problems. Because look what happened during the COVID. A lot of our doctors, care workers on the front line lost their lives because they were doing work on grassroots and perhaps people were there for 10, 20 years and maybe didn't have the opportunity to leave or even find other opportunities. But I'm saying there's so much opportunities now. Yeah, right. That is true. There is so much opportunity now in the world we live in today. Uh, so that uh, you, you, you know, you, you said it all, no? because the internet is a leveler. In that with internet, wherever you are, if you if you are connected to internet, you can do a lot of things today. It is possible. Yeah. All right. Now let's go back to the to the real meat of this convert this session of the conversation, which is widowhood, the loss of one part of the of the of the component of the marriage, which brings a lot of pain and a lot of distress. No. Now I'm trying to understand the children that are left behind. What have you found on those parts? You know. How do they manage to to go on with 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 their life? I think if you're what I've come across is women have worked alongside or worked alongside me. If you're a woman who has vision and quite strong, strong in your faith and strong in your vision for the future, the children thrive. I always believe that if your children see you're thriving, they thrive as well. However, what I did initially is when Malzom passed, it's important to explore what is happening with your children emotionally and find the support they need. Like for me, I mainly happened, I contacted their schools and found out what support to make them aware that this has happened. So as much as they're returning to school, the world doesn't look normal at this present time because of the loss of their dad. So what support do they have in the school? So I explored that gain support for my children. And I did it all along the way, even when they left certain schools, wherever I found there was a emotional gap, I tried to seek out help and get support. 
and then obviously got them to join groups like because the more active our children are and the more you expose them to different kinds of children the more they realize that what they think is a huge challenge in their lives actually they would hear more bigger stories that people have to share and it becomes quite humbling and you appreciate also other people's journeys and not just dwell as a victim in your own challenge as well okay thank thank you for that um in the course of this your work uh, on widowhood have you maybe see some people who maybe are here because i am trying to see if we can pay more attention to the african diaspora no course, it's still important okay. in, in Africa, this particular conversation, or you know, who we really need more element to, to deal on it, you know, like the culture, the tradition, yeah. because all this one play very much on what happened and on the event when it has happened in Africa, you no? Know? Yeah. But here, yeah. that does still play a part, but it's less, it's less heavy compared to what happens yes. in, in, say, in Nigeria. Yeah. Do you sometimes see people complain of, of pressure from home? Maybe, for example, they have lost their, their mm -hmm. husband. Now they are here alone, trying to raise the children. Uh, is that like a kind of a pressure from home, maybe from the family uh, of the of the mother, trying to do something that is against the will of these women, these widows? Well, I've, I've met different people. I mean, I came during being online and talking to widows. There was a case I came across of a woman who became widowed in a developed world. And all the property the man had, the in-laws, apparently in Nigeria, got documentation and went to claim the property in the courts in another country. So that meant she was actually driven out of her home with her children and so on and so forth. Then there's people in like East Africa that have liaised with where the man died suddenly due to an illness. And then the business collapsed because they couldn't pay the loan back. Then that impacted on her credits. Then she lost her job because she had to stay with her children because they're quite young. Even though the mother is around, the mother lives far away. And then even as much as I do things online, some of the women cannot afford the, the Wi-Fi is too expensive. So that takes away from even the support they can get internationally or from whatever, because, because you don't have enough time the benefit of the internet is you can communicate with anyone, even in your country, but then there's issues around the money to pay for the internet. But thank God for WhatsApp, people use more WhatsApp and stuff now. So you can share links and so on and so forth on that. Then I've come across cases where people have been beaten. There was a lady who was telling me that she can't, she doesn't have anything to eat. They've pushed her out of her house and her children. So many horror stories that I don't even want to share. It's not even bear thinking about. Yeah, so you come across that. So it's like from one, one side of the pendulum to the other where people are, widows are thriving perhaps in the West, but they're dwelling so much on the past, but they're comfortable. And there's people on the other pendulum where they're thriving, they want to seek a new vision, but they don't have the means to do it or they haven't given the basis to do it, you know, this, this springboard. It's just so wide, it's such a wide um, area. Of course, we are not going to talk so much on what is happening in Africa in respect of this argument, even though that mm -hmm. actually uh, might be very relevant, no? Because we are talking yeah. about the question of death, widow, widow, widower. Yeah. It is painful, like you say, it is really, really painful. But I think that uh, both in our cultural value and in our in our tradition, our way of life, 
We should look for a way to protect those who are left behind. We should look for a way to make sure that life is worth living for them. Instead of uh, trying to um, try to abuse them, try to basically take advantage of them. Because this happens in most of the cases. Sometimes uh, they use the culture, sometimes they use the law even uh, to make sure that yeah. those who are not strong enough to stand for themselves are taken advantage yeah. of. In most of these cases, the women. Uh, so let, let me be specific on that. But yeah. then I have a question. Say this man had debt, say maybe like $1 million uh, debt. Yeah. Will this family gather together to take the money, to pay the money so that the, the woman will not uh, pay it? Or would they leave the no, money to the woman to pay? They will take the money. <laughs> well, the cases I've come across, they tend to take, they take, they, they believe that from once. What I don't understand is when you when a woman marries a man, wherever you are around the world, you become one. That's what the Bible says. So everything he owns is yours. So even because the case in question where the in-laws claim the property, what I've come to understand is that they were saying the name was Mr. So-and-so rather Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, but that shouldn't matter. The bottom line is there's a document showing that they were married, they were legally married. So nowadays, a lot of people, like even people that haven't been widowed are saying they make sure all their documentation and property says Mr. and Mrs., Mr. and Mrs., because they're afraid when death comes, and even though there's a will, people might want to melee claims on those properties. I've even told people that they better make sure there's two names on it. And that doesn't guarantee people might, might not want to take you to court for it. They might even claim that the will or was made when it was of sound mind. All right, now talking of that, talking of what happened after the death now, I am going yeah. to rephrase the question that I asked to you before because probably I wasn't clear enough mm -hmm. on it. Okay. All right. Now, say the yeah. man that died is Mr. AZ, no? Yeah. Had one mm. million dollar to pay to a company. He died. Yes. The family is now in debt. Yeah. We the extended family gather the money and pay the debt, or they will leave it for the family, the, the bereaved family, the the woman, the widow, to pay the debt. That is what I'm asking. Uh, I mean, there's been different cases, like some some people would some in-laws would pay it. I've had had cases where people paid off things for the wife that lost the husband, and perhaps there are cases where they didn't. So I would say, in a sense, there's. I always say to everyone, I always say, in everything I talk about, in everything in our lives, there's always good and bad. No matter how bad things are, there's always an element of good. So even when I talk about widows, not every in-law wants to kick their, um, their daughter-in-law out or whatever. Their families that support, like I got a lot of support when my husband died in different ways. I know people who still get support from their in-laws and they still support the children continuously. And then I've heard of people who never got support. So it's both ways, really. And uh, when you share, okay, now what actually I'm trying to get from this particular point now is that uh, in yeah, the work yeah. that you are doing, um, it's not only uh, uh, legal or only, um, how do I pull it, only psychological, but it's also cultural, no? Uh, yeah, there is a bit yeah, of it that is religious, uh, the, but there is a, a, a strong part of it that is cultural, no? Now, is there any way that uh, your cultural understanding of where you are coming from influence mm -hmm. how you approach this work? 
Well, you you can't. I one thing I've learned is I can't afford for my own cultural influence to influence what I'm doing. So, like when I'm if I'm de- talking with a widow in England, that is where I am. I can relate to that. If I'm talking to a widow in Kenya, I have to go and learn about what the challenges are there. I can't apply my current setting with there because their challenges might be different as my challenges would be. So you, so I have to adapt it to each cultural setting. But the commonality, though, is even though there's cultural challenges, they, all the elements are very similar in terms of the pain, in terms of people clinging to faith, in terms of lack of money, in terms of the children's needs and supports, and in terms of the isolation as well, and the mindset, the shifting, the need to shift your mindset and strengthen your mind. Those elements, whatever sort of culture we find ourselves, those things still become apparent. And how we manage the loss. So there's issues around self-pity. It could be in Kenya, it could be in England. There's issues around people are praying, praying, but not doing anything. It could be in England, it could be in Kenya, it could be in Nigeria. So, so that's how I see it holistically. All right. But when people say things yes. to me, you have to educate yourself on the background. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. All right, no, no, thank, thank you very much for that. Now, I'm going to ask you the last thing here, then we'll move to the, your coaching uh, to conclude the, the conversation. All right. Okay. Mm, the people that come to you, at the end of the day, what do they usually get from me after after this program? What what usually happened to them? Okay. What I want to say to you initially is <clears throat> where I am at in coaching is fairly quite new because when, when the pandemic came in, I decided to set up my business as a grief and life coach. So I've done what I've done. Basically, I've done a lot of work online. And when I'm even talking to people, I do it remotely. Whilst in my old job before the pandemic, I was fortunate in mental health to meet people in in groups in physical (coughs) rooms. So it's quite different. So the work I've done to date is I tend to do a lot of educational work on my podcast. And then I wrote a blog as well, which is for people who have just recently when I recently lost my husband, I wrote a blog for a good, maybe for a year. And that talks about my journey and how to navigate your growth and the loss. But with my podcast now and relating to my coaching, it's like, I look at after three years, where do you want to go? <clears throat> you can't continue to dwell on the loss. What do you want your life to be like? So I look at things like, do you need to enhance your finances? Would you want to be in a new relationship? How do you shift the mindset from the past to walking into your present? Claim a new mindset, believing you are worthy to be loved again and to love another. How do you leave the bones, the ashes from behind and walk into something more beautiful? So those are things I look at when I'm talking on my podcast and introducing my coaching service. So this, this, the coaching, initially I introduced the service for three months, but I noticed because of the pandemic and finances, people might not be able to afford it. So I've reduced, so one of my packages now is for six weeks. And it basically looks at the blockages because when we, in life generally, we have limitations, which we, which we are not aware of. But what I say is when you then have loss, where you were part of two and you unified and then you lose part of you, your mindset definitely becomes shaken because you can experience issues around confidence. Your confidence can wane. 
you can't, your image, your self-image also is affected. In certain communities where people feel like marriage is the all, all and be all, you can start to feel like you can't interact in certain communities. So there's so many issues, even around dating, where do you begin? What if I find the wrong person? Um, I, I don't want to marry yet. Maybe I should, so many things. But I say to people, widows, that I believe there's something about reinventing yourself. Reinventing yourself would start from where you live. Change your environment. Try to revamp your environment. Perhaps change yourself, your hairstyle, self-care, enhance your self-care, take more care of yourself. The more you do that, the more your the glass you look through becomes much clearer for your future. If the glass you're looking through is bled because of your emotional baggage, you're still recovering, you're still walking your grief. You cannot write out a map plan for your future. But what coaching does is, we walk, I work with people who have been widowed at least a year or two, because under a year, you're still in the throes of grief. But from two to three years, you start to move into an area I call transformation, where you're perhaps open to looking at new areas of income, looking at perhaps dating again. You're open to date again. Why not? Because if you're going, if people are living to, I said to me, if you're going to live to 120 and you were widowed at 40, so that means you're going to be widowed till another more or less, um, how many years? 80 years or more? So it's a long time to be on your own and your children grow up. Our children are very resilient. I find no matter what loss we go through, as long as you are okay, no matter where you're presenting it, our children have a fighting spirit. If anything, I found the adversity made my children more driven to grab life more than ever before. Whilst many times when we haven't been challenged in our lives, we tend to not be as driven. We tend to sit back a bit. Whilst adversity, disappointment makes us more hungry for life because you see what you've lost and you want to grab at life more. And that's what I mean when I talk about finding purpose out of loss. You've lost your spouse. You have to find something greater to give you meaning in your life. If it means setting up a project that will be your husband's name to help the children of widows, it could be educating on people doing soft skills, training, whatever is your forte, whatever is your gifting, is the purpose you have was there before and it will come out more greater when you dig deeper for it. How can people find your 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 courses? Whether whether they are valuable? Well, the best place to go to find my work is it's at business and marriage coaching.co.uk. Right. You will find me there. You find all my links, my LinkedIn, my my Instagram pages. You'll find everything you need to find. You'll find it on there. All right. Now, there is something that I found very important. Uh, I think you made mention of the word purpose a number of times in this podcast. Yeah. I think, yes. uh, really through uh, your words, um, your, your work online, I find also a kind of a combination of it. I think you said something like uh, redefining uh, your pain and loss to a greater purpose. What would you yes, like to yes. say about that as we conclude this podcast? I think, as we've said before, like life would always throw us different curveballs. And one we're talking about today is about widowhood. But I say once you're still, the main thing is your husband has passed, but you're still alive. 
And the fact that the Lord has made you here, kept you here, there must be a greater need and a greater purpose for you. So what I what you might find is you might have been an accountant before where your husband died, and all of a sudden, the the need, you might have had a skill to write. You might start writing and writing to a certain audience that perhaps you never realized you could do before he died. There's always something in your hand that you haven't exploited, exploited that explored that you can use to re, to recover and also serve human beings in the world that we're in. So that is the purpose I talk about. To the widows listening, wherever you are, whatever stage you're at, if you're in the stage of grief, that will pass. When you get to recovery, that will pass. Your children will grow. They will grow and become, they will succeed because the pain we go through makes them more driven. And just dare to dream a greater dream. Even if you can't see it now, have a dream of what you want your life to be and start to do one thing every day that will get you closer to that dream. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yemi. This is where we come to the end of the podcast. I really appreciate the time and the sharing. Thank you for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehead Podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.